Welcome to episode 22 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Well, the show has some new intro music this week that was written and recorded by my good friend, Rich Clark. If you like what you heard, Rich has two music projects that you can check out. The first one is called the Clark County Drifters, which has a bluegrass slash folk slash country vibe. And the second project is called Among These Ashes. And that project is distinctly heavy metal. And Rich actually just released his first full-length album. Well, I'm excited about today's episode where I talk with Bo Martonic. If that name isn't already familiar to you, Bo is a Pennsylvania native and the founder and host of the East Meets West Hunt podcast. I had a chance to meet Bo over the summer of 2021 out in Montana, and we talked a little hunting, and I knew that he was someone that I wanted to hear more from. Bo is a great whitetail hunter who specializes in big woods and mountain buck tactics. In this episode, we discuss the origins of Bo's podcast, the importance of physical fitness, adventure hunting, the sacrifices it takes to make hunting a priority in life, tactics for big woods and mountain bucks, trail camera strategies, and a whole lot more. This is a killer episode, and I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Two quick notes. First, I've been getting a lot of questions about what gear I use and why. I've added a new page to my website titled My Hunting Gear List that details almost every piece of gear I use and some of my favorite features of each piece of gear on that list. I'll put a link to the new page in the description. Second, I have a new blog post out on my website about my top 10 tips for postseason scouting. If you're looking to level up your postseason scouting this year, head on over to my blog and give that one a read. I'll post a link for that as well. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Visit the Stealth Outdoors store to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear. Sadly, hunting seasons are closed, but February is a fantastic time to inventory your gear and make upgrades for the upcoming season. If your gear isn't already sporting stealth strips, what are you waiting for? Thousands of satisfied hunters have silenced their gear using the products from Stealth Outdoors. Designed with the mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Don't let unwanted noise get you busted this season. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and to place your order today. And now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the phone, I got Bo Maratonic. Bo, for the listeners that aren't already familiar with you or your podcast, give us a quick intro of who Bo Maratonic is what he's about, and a brief overview of your own podcast titled East Meets West. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jeremy. I, I really appreciate it. I um, Well, first of all, I guess I should say that uh, I got to meet you in person this, this past summer. I was out visiting my brother in Montana, and both of you guys are kind of transplants out there. So <laughs> it was good to, good to get to meet you and watch the rodeo there. Yeah, that was a good time for sure. <laughs> But um, as far as the background on myself, so I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from like uh, basically the middle of nowhere, north central Pennsylvania. And I've grown up hunting whitetails and turkeys for the most part. And it's, it's always been something that I just really, I had no other choice. My family and everybody here, we had our family deer camp and just hunting whitetails was kind of a, a way of life and grew up shooting guns and bows at a very young age and shooting competition, uh, archery when I was very little. And then, uh, just kind of moving into trying to learn how to do it on my own after watching my dad for a lot of years. And, and the area that, that I'm in is a little bit different than typical whitetail country. And it's, uh, all big timbered areas and some of it's 
pretty steep Appalachian type mountain country. Some of it's a little bit flatter, swampier, big woods country, but there's, there's a, a variety of it. It's something that, uh, I love doing and eventually it kind of led me to wanting to expand and go out west. Before 2016, I'd never been west of the Mississippi River, never seen the mountains and the Rocky Mountains before. I uh, just decided to plan uh first elk hunt and went and did it and didn't come home with anything. But that trip there, that it was like a, we did seven day backpack trip, which is something I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend for your first hunt, but uh, it was something we wanted to do. And, and it just has brought me back every year since I haven't missed a year to, to go out West. And when I started hunting out there, I realized that there was kind of a gap in information as far as for someone, you know, from the East or the Midwest to be able to plan these, these Western style hunts. And there was, there was a lot of information out there, don't get me wrong, but I felt like it it wasn't as relatable because it was mostly, you know, Western hunters talking about it. So I'd actually wrote a story on it um, just for myself. I I wrote a story about, um, I titled it East Meets West. I think my brother was actually the one who came up with the name and just talked about that elk hunt. And I submitted it online to the, the journal Mountain Hunting, which was at the time a uh a podcast and uh, online journal that I like to uh, listen to and, and check out their stuff. And Adam, the editor, ran a story there. And when I shared it on social media, that's when I really learned that there's just this this gap in information. And people were like, oh, I wish I had that kind of money to do that. Or I wish I had the time or this and that. And I was like, it really, it wasn't that expensive. And anybody could go and do it. It just need to learn how to do it. So long story short, that kind of started me thinking about starting the podcast, East Meets West Hunt. And so I was like, I want to be able to talk to successful hunters from all over the, the U.S., whether it's for, you know, playing Western hunts or, or, you know, in the home state of Pennsylvania and the Appalachian Mountains, talk to these people that are more successful than than myself and know a lot more than myself and me just be curious and ask questions that other people want to know answers to, to selfishly improve myself and learn more and get better. But also with the mic on and being able to put it out there, help others be able to do that as, as well. So kind of a long winded uh, intro there, but that's kind of the, the background. No, I appreciate all the information, Bo, and a lot of things that you said there that I want to circle back around to that I can relate to myself and took some notes. The first one is talking about the culture in, in Pennsylvania. And I know growing up in Michigan, I always explain it to people that aren't from Michigan or Pennsylvania or New York, some of these really big states with huge hunter populations. I always explain it to people. It's like, if you grow up in a rural area in one of those states, it's not a hobby or a sport. It's like a religion. And it, it really is. You know, that's, it sounds like that's been your experience as well. Oh yeah, you're hundred percent right. It's it's I, I like I said, just didn't didn't have a choice and our deer camp is like one of the coolest things. As I, you know, said a little bit earlier, my entire family is just so big into hunting and we go there, you know, from October when it starts through December, you know, from archery season to rifle season, we're there on the weekends and some weeknights after work or after we're done hunting and it's just something I've never changed. And I've always heard that 
Michigan is very similar to Pennsylvania uh, when it comes to that hunting culture and, you know, the type of people, everything else. Yeah, the deer camp atmosphere is real big and it's more about getting together and the hunt and the social experience than it is so much trophy hunting. Like it's kind of shifting that way where there's there's more people, especially the younger generation, that seem to be a little more interested in like QDMA type tactics. But the old school guys for sure, it's just like get together, have the camp, drink some beers. If you get a deer, great. But it's it's very social too. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And and that's one of the things that I like so much about rifle hunting. Um, our, our gun season is when like the most people come to camp. And it's that time where like most of the year, I'm so focused on, you know, basically hunting by myself and hunting for a specific goal as far as like, what my target is or what what i'm trying to accomplish with it and when it comes down to gun season that's like uh, a whole different thing like it the actual hunting part or what you know what you're trying to accomplish i guess with hunting doesn't matter as much as as being able to be around the family and friends that you share deer camp with and sharing stories and cooking food and just hanging out and, and hunting together where, like I said, archery season is more of like a solo endeavor for me and getting to go out with, you know, some of your buddies and stuff. That's, that's, it's just like a, they're both great. I love them both, but it's just a, a different feel. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that I always try to emphasize to like people that are trying to get other non hunters involved in hunting. It's like, that's the kind of atmosphere in my opinion that draws people in like the camaraderie and stuff. People don't want to come in and hear about uh, QDMA and don't shoot this deer because it's not three and a half years old. Like, don't get me wrong. I want to shoot a big buck as bad as the next guy. But it's like important to kind of communicate that to, to new people, you know, the atmosphere more than than the trophy hunting. I can definitely agree with that. It's, it all depends on your level and what your goals are. And with new people, that's uh, they're not going to come in. You know, if, if you're if you're the way that you're, I guess, showing them or the way you're teaching them in camp is like, Oh, you only shoot this caliber deer. You do that. I just think that's setting them up for failure um, because it's not easy. And, you know, if you've done it for a while, then, then you have that experience and you're able to accomplish that and go for those types of goals. But at the beginning, man, that's, that's hard. And that can discourage people from continuing to hunt. And I just, I don't like that part of it. Yeah, exactly. You, you don't go straight to the NBA or the NFL. You gotta you gotta play the juniors first. Hundred percent. One of the other things that you mentioned in there in uh, the initial question, Bo, was people thinking uh, or saying to you, "Oh, I wish I had that kind of money," and it's so expensive. That's something that I thought initially too, but now it's something I want to get into also a little bit later in the podcast. There's a lot of ways to cut out expenses and like unnecessary things, so. We're going to touch on that for sure. And then one of the last things that I heard you say that I, I could really relate to is like the podcast motivation, kind of having that dual edged sort of being a little bit selfish and also wanting to share and give back to the community because that is really similar to, to why I started. You know, I wanted to call hunters or, or talk to these guys and have deeper conversations with people that I wouldn't otherwise talk to. And I was like, well, having a podcast would be a great way or a great excuse to call these guys up and look at them. I'm talking to you right now. You, we could have picked someone better for that, but <laughs> I, I can, no, I can relate to what you're saying. There's like, 
how else would I get a chance to talk to these people and, and get to pick their brains and dive deep into it? Like, it just, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, well, let's go ahead and, and get into the meat and potatoes here. Uh, one of the questions I have for you, Bo, on your YouTube channel, you've got a video you posted and, it, and it's older now. I've watched a lot of your content probably two years ago. It's titled The Why Behind East Meets West Hunt, and it's a Bo Martonic interview. He said a few things in that video that also resonated with me, and I want to touch on some of those. First, one of the things you mentioned in that video, there's a segment that talks about the physical challenges of hunting and mountain hunting specifically, and that gives a guy a, a little different perspective on everyday life. I'd like you to expand on that and discuss how hunting and mountain hunting has shaped you as a person. Yeah, so... What I meant by that line is like, so when it comes to, to mountain hunting and, and hunting in the West and some of these places, like it's, it's physically demanding. It's hard. There's no, you're not taking a vehicle up to the top of this hill. You're not, you have to, every step is earned. Everything that you do is on you to be able to do that, which for me, I, I realized that I was like, okay, I want to be in the best shape as I possibly can to be able to do that. And I've always been into fitness. Like that's been something that's been important to me since I was in high school. But what, what mountain hunting taught me is to be the best that you can be. I'm not saying physical fitness is everything to it, but it is a big part. It's a big part of enjoying your experience, better shape that you're in, the more that you'll enjoy that experience. And so that led me to being disciplined and, working out every day and and when i say that it's like it doesn't have to be two hours a day in the gym or whatever it might be 15 minutes sometimes it might be an hour it might be 30 minutes but every day since so i have uh, a regular job where I, I work anywhere from nine to ten hours a day and i the only time i could really find to get in is before work so that made me disciplined to get up and get a workout in before I go to work. And it just kind of re it sets your day differently when you, you get up and you accomplish something right away. You get your blood flowing, you're sweating a little bit, you're getting yourself moving. And that just helped me like realize like, okay. And I, you know, I got in pretty good shape and I felt good. And I'm like, okay, you know, as you, when you're disciplined in these things, you can get better in it. And that just applies to, you know, anything in life. And I look at any challenge or any goal that I want to accomplish as that and breaking it down into small pieces and just working out a little bit every day to be able to, to go there. So that's kind of what I meant by, by that. I am admittedly not in the greatest physical condition these days, not the worst, but not the greatest. I've been in much better shape at earlier points in my life. And I think I'm a little, actually quite a bit older than you. How old are you? I'm um, 29. 29. So I'm 38. And probably I was in pretty good shape up until my mid to late twenties. And, and then I got a desk job and I've fallen off the wagon some, but, <laughs> but the, uh, the mountains, they will let you know really quick what kind of shape you're in. So you can think you're in one kind of shape. And then as soon as you get out there, you find out what kind of shape you're really in. So that's a point I wanted to bring up to anyone that is considering a Western hunt, especially a mountain hunt, I mean, because not all Western hunts are mountain hunts, you know, you can hunt antelope or whatever, but commit early on in your planning or your preparation to some sort of physical fitness regimen. And whether that's like you said, 15 minutes, 30 minutes of cardio every day, whether you're rucking on the weekend, something like start getting in mountain shape because that will have a 
huge detrimental impact on your hunt if you are not. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. There are people that can tough it out and do just fine. But for me, I like it. I like it to be enjoyable, at least for part of it, you know, so the best, you know, better shape I can be in and it just puts you in a better mental state. It makes you more confident when you look at and you spot something across that mountain. You don't think like, oh man, I got to climb all the way over there. I got to do this. Uh, you know, it is getting close to dark. I probably won't make it in time. You start coming up with these things in your head when you're confident about it and you feel good, you just you go and do it and it creates more opportunities. And I, I just, can't see how that can be um that could be argued yeah so that was a, a great point from that video and i thought that's real important especially for people that you know my audience is largely whitetail hunters but there are a lot of people that ask me questions about hunting out west probably similar to what you experienced so i wanted to bring up some of those topics today and something else you said in that video kind of unrelated but from that same video you used a term that's near and dear to my heart which is adventure hunting i'd like to hear what adventure hunting means to you and what is the appeal for that to you personally? Adventure hunting is funny because I feel like I've defined it um, into myself when I think about it as, as a bunch of different ways. But adventure hunting to me is kind of like, it's kind of going into, as cliche as it sounds, kind of going into the unknown and something that's challenging and seeing new places and being able to experience new things and and some and even when i say that that doesn't mean like every adventure hunts in a new place but every time you go in, on these types of hunts that you have new experiences or you see something differently if you you know fully engulf yourself in that because like on a on a regular regular day or right in your everyday life you kind of get in these these ruts or these just emotions of things where when you go on these types of hunts you're really able to disconnect and be able to see things that I feel like not, not a lot of people in the world get to see. And that's, that's where I keep coming back to it and keep driving to, to go on more adventure hunts. Yeah. And that, like I said, that really resonated with me. I started traveling in like 2013 or 2014. I'm from Michigan. So Ohio was like the first out of state hunt I went on, but it was just, it was different enough where I was like, Oh, this is a lot of fun. And then since then I've been to a whole bunch of States, Kansas, the Dakotas, Montana, hunted in Iowa this year. So all over the place. And I really enjoy it. And that's probably one of my favorite things about hunting now is just going to like tackle new terrain. It's fun to hunt different species, get out there and inevitably, and I want to hear your experience on this. It seems like overall it's made me a much better hunter hunting different areas, different terrain, different species. You've has the same thing happened to you? Oh yeah, I, I totally agree. And like, it doesn't even matter what the species is, even if it's completely different. There's things you can pull from it to apply to it. You know, for me with whitetails, whitetails has been my bread and butter, what I've done my whole life. But elk hunting has taught me so much about about whitetails, and you know, even getting a better feel for the the wind and thermals and understanding that, and just and different tactics as far as being on the ground and, and also you know, yeah, hunting off the ground a little bit more and different things that I've pulled from going to these different places to apply back home. And actually the first state that I ever traveled to out of state was Ohio myself. And that was the year, I think that was in 2014 when I did that. And that just kind of, you know, when I started hunting there. I'm like, okay, 
And I brought some things I learned there back to PA. And then that led to going to these other places. And it's just, I, I feel like it makes you more well-rounded for sure. And, and if you let it teach you things to um, apply and think outside the box, I think it can be really beneficial. Yeah, that's a great attitude and a great point there. Like, let it teach you. Just, I mean, everybody has like their hunting style and preferred methods, but don't go in with set in stone, real rigid preconceptions of what's going to happen. Just kind of let the experience dictate some of these things. And for sure, like like I said, I've learned a, a ton. And it sounds like you have too. Yeah. So last thing I want to cover from that video in making these types of adventures and hunting experiences a priority. And along with that, for most guys, and we talked about this a little earlier, that means sacrifice or trade-offs. So talk to me about some of the sacrifices and trade-offs that you've made or that the average guy can make and to help these Western hunts become a reality. Yeah. So there's, I mean, you can really go on a bunch of different scales here and it all depends on where you're at in life and things to, to determine what it is for you. But I think the first thing I'll, I'll say is I don't like when people just be like, Oh, well that person's got this going for them. So I, I, that doesn't apply to me or that, that can't work. It's not the idea of exactly what somebody says more so is the idea of it and thinking in that type of mindset, you know? So like for me, one of it was, is when I first, you know, when I first got out of college and I, I bought everything I could once I got my first job, I thought I was rich, you know, and I bought, <laughs> I bought a new, I bought a new truck and bought a side by side and had loans for all this stuff. And I'm like, I can't even, I, I can't afford anything other than paying off this stuff. And at that point, it didn't feel real. Like I could do go on these hunts. You know, once I sold my side by side and used that money to pay off my truck and I, I started doing, you know, and, and now I still drive uh, the truck that I've had for a, a while. I don't have any payments on it. And, you know, I bought a, a moderate house. I didn't buy anything that was out of my means that I have to have this ridiculous payment for and just, little things that that every time like if i go to purchase something like i I don't have many toys like as far as that i know many other people do i don't have i don't have a boat i don't have a snowmobile i don't have any of these types of things and i would love to and i I don't wrong anybody for doing so but if hunting and adventure type hunting is something that means a lot to you there are sacrifices you got to make unless you just have you know a bunch of money and again, those things are just examples that relate to me, but I'm sure there's something in, in someone else's life that they can think about on uh, what you can cut out because like to save up, I used to say it was like $1,500 going elk hunt, a little more now, probably, probably about two grand. Um, and depending on where you live in the U.S., gas is the biggest variable with that now, but you know, to be able to do that and put that money aside, you know, over uh, a year or two time frame, like you can make it happen if you think about it and you lay it out. So that's, that's kind of for me, what, what I would say on that. And, and what I, what I meant from some of those, the sacrifices and, and for also for me, like I've tried to, you know, to make extra money on the side and whether that's having uh, a side business, you know, like that I've started with the podcast and everything. And it could be anything else, something small. It doesn't have to be something along those lines. It's doing something to, which 
you know, can sacrifice time and stuff, but I, I look at what my goal is and figure out, you know, what I need to do to achieve that. And I don't look at it as I'll never be able to obtain that. I just look at how can I obtain that and, you know, see if it, if it means enough to, to want to go for it. Yeah. A bunch of great points there. And again, I think maybe when I ran into you over the summer there, it's like certain people you just know you, you got like this common bond with or shared experience. And I could tell like, I was like, this guy gets it, you know, for you humble, yeah. humble beginnings. Like you're grinding, you're getting out there, you're making things happen. And I just want to touch on a couple of points. Cause you're, you're bringing up a lot of great points, Bo. And the first thing uh, I think it's Henry Ford. There's a quote that says something like, if you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right either way. And Going, yep. going back to what you said earlier about mindset, like people say, oh, I can't do that. Well, you're right. You can't do it. <laughs> and if you want to do it, you'll find a way to do it. So I'm a, a numbers math nerd kind of guy. And you talking about the Alcon, you know, 1500 bucks. I like to put things in perspective, like break it down. It's attainable. So there's 52 weeks in a year. If I worked two hours a week, that'd be 104 hours. If I made $15 an hour at a side job. There you go. That's your $1,500 for your elk hunt. So do you want to work two hours extra a week to go on an elk hunt? Like that's not that big of a sacrifice. And a lot of that is mindset. I mean, if you think about it like that, right, two hours a week and I can go on an elk hunt in the Rockies, like that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. Oh man, that's, that's exactly right. I'm glad you broke that down because I had, I had some notes. um, I presented on this at one point and I couldn't remember. I had it all broke down, but I couldn't remember exactly (laughs) the numbers. So I didn't want to, uh, I'm not as good as math, as math, so I have to have things written down to to remember the exact details of it. But that's I, I just I, I totally agree with your point there. And then another thing, and this is it sounds like you hunted Colorado, and Colorado's still an over the counter state. But if you want to go to a dry elk state, like let's say Wyoming, where you might need two, three, five points, those numbers get even better because you can start buying a point for. 50 bucks a year or whatever the elk points cost in the state you're looking at. And now you've got a three year or a five year horizon to, you know, to save up that money. And now you only, you know, you need a half an hour a week for three years or whatever. Exactly. And again, it just depends on what, what you want and how you can commit to it. I mean, one of the big things for me, Jeremy was, is investing in knowledge and learning, whether that's on YouTube or taking, you know, an organized course or whatever. I mean, just the last month I had joined Cody Rich's, uh, he had a course about entrepreneurship and, and creating side gigs and stuff. And I, you know, that's something that's also interests me. And I wanted to learn how he preaches how to basically, um, not trade time for money and be able to make money with less time. And, and it sounds like a gimmick, but it's not. And, you know, I learned something from it. And it, those are the types of things that, like, throughout the years, I always just try to learn and learn more and try to understand different ways. And maybe I could make a little money here to help me do this or not all about money, but those are just di- different ways that I've kind of looked at things and trying to invest in learning. Because no, no matter, like, when I started the podcast, I knew nothing about podcasting. I still don't know a ton about the audio side of it and how you and I were talking before this and and that doesn't mean that because I don't know everything that I can't do it like you just 
you learn as you go and you can you can do things you just gotta put your mind to it and say you're gonna do it and you're set a date that you're gonna do it uh or whatever and then figure out how to make it happen but i'm just such a big believer in mindset and just truly being confident in it and there's there's one thing i mean sometimes i feel like i do have a little bit of blind confidence when i shouldn't <laughs> but uh and that, that can get you get you in trouble but you know having confidence in it and if you're willing to put in the work and figure it out i, I don't see how how you can fail in that yeah and again saying a bunch of stuff that really resonates with me personally it's like you don't have to be an expert. You just have to be competent and being competent and being an expert to me are pretty different things, right? Like, are you uh, a capable driver of your everyday vehicle that sure, then you're competent. Does that mean you can race NASCAR or formula one? Probably not. Like you don't have to be perfect. And that's another one of my favorite one-liner cliche type sayings is perfection is the enemy of progress. I see so many people that want to go on these types of hunts and and it sounds like you did it initially i know i did it initially and maybe we can talk about that a little more it's like planning out a seven day backpack hunt you probably researched it to death went over all the gear bought more gear than you needed took more gear than you needed and it's like at the end of the day you just need to do it right you just need to get going yeah i totally agree with that i'm by design somebody that overthinks things and I still do it. Like I still, I still do things where I, I try to, I start planning so much that I get overwhelmed with it and then you do nothing. There's uh, a part of it where, you know, being able to, like you said, not, not be perfect, but get good enough and just try it and do it. And then you learn and you get better over time and then you can tweak things and identify where your weaknesses are and get better at it. Yeah, and on that topic, we mentioned earlier in the podcast, I wanted to come back to that. Talk to me about your first elk hunt, and specifically, I'd like to know, like, your gear loadout and what you take now, and how has that kind of evolved over time? Like, what did you think you needed, and what do you think now that you have experience over a couple of years? What's really important to you now versus what you thought was going to be important? Before we hear about Bo's Elk Gear, I want to take a break to mention HuntingBeastGear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products, including Beast Gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast Gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, which includes the fastening strap. HuntingBeastGear.com has also released the game-changing Beast Gear hang-on tree stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution, with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com today. Now, back to the podcast. Ah, that's, that's a good question. So, my first elk hunt, there was some things that like I researched gear to death and I was working in an archery shop part-time 
at, at, at that point in my life. And so I got some discounts on things to be able to, to buy more. And that's literally why I worked at that archery shop because I wanted good gear and I wanted a little bit of extra side money, which never really turned into side money. It turned into me usually trading it for stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I got into the gimmick of like the most, the lightest weight backpack that you could get and which ended up breaking on the, the first, I think it was the first day of the hunt. Oh, no. uh, I ripped it. I ripped the bag. My cousin talked to him into buying the same one. His main belt buckle broke really early in the hunt. Like a lot of things. And I'm like, okay, that was something that I skimped on or I looked at and was like, Oh, I need the lightest weight, you know, this. And wasn't necessarily, you know, I didn't need a big giant like external frame on it, but I needed something that was uh, a little bit more middle of the road. And so that was something that, that I had learned there. And another, another thing was I just packed too much clothes. I packed extra everything, like multiples. Like I, I, I packed, you know, if you, if I'm doing a seven day hunt, I might pack two extra pair of underwear, a couple extra pair of socks. And at that point I was doing more than that. And I was having extra base layers and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, you know, if I have a good Merino wool or synthetic base layer and, you know, Merino wool underwear and socks, like I can get more out of that. I just overpacked. I had a first aid kit that had a ton of stuff that I didn't know how to use in it. Um, those types of things. One thing that I felt like I did right on the first trip that I eventually did wrong and had to go back to it was I pack a ton of food. And I was like, I need to cut back on this food. It weighs a lot. It does weigh a lot, but food is so important. Um, and you burn so many calories when you're in mountains. So I've learned that I won't skimp on food. I'll bring as much food as, as I can. And uh, yeah, that was just some of the things that, that I had learned from that, that first trip. Yeah, the food's an interesting one because not only is that good for the body, but if things aren't going your way, especially on a mountain hunt or backcountry hunt, food is good for morale too. Oh, it, it definitely is. Like I've seen people where they do like the stoveless method, and they don't carry a stove, and everything's kind of liquid or bars. And I'm like, no, not not a chance, man. <laughs> right. Like that's my only thing. You know, at the end of the day, I'm looking forward to is a hot meal or hot coffee in the morning. So <laughs> it's a uh, yeah, that's just not, that's not for me. No, me either. And that's like, I think it's really important to understand yourself as a hunter and like your hunting style. Everybody, especially as you get older, like you kind of figure out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And that's different for everybody. I mean, there's some overlap, of course, but everybody kind of has their own hunting personality, like their, you know, their regular personality. So if that's one thing that you know you need to get through some of those grinding moments or hard times, like by all means, some things are worth the wait. Yeah, I agree. I'll never not take a little packable pillow with me because like sleeping good at night is important. Uh, that was another thing. I took a, I took a really lightweight sleeping pad on that trip that every time I rolled over, my shoulder was like digging into the ground and I struggled sleeping and I was always waking up with my, with my shoulders hurting and everything. And I, uh, you know, eventually got one of few ounces heavier but it was thicker and it, it i was more comfortable and i could get a good night's rest so that was that was important some of those things you can't help but learn by through experience and again that's like the just get going the first year you're going to learn so much about what works for you what doesn't work for you which gear worked, which gear didn't work and it's like the sooner you get that first year under your belt the sooner you can you know grow from those experiences 
Yeah, I, I agree. Well, Bo, let's switch gears here. We'll talk about your bread and butter, which is whitetails. And one of the many reasons that I was excited to talk to you is your knowledge on hunting big woods, mountain bucks in places like Pennsylvania. So you recently published an article, I guess it's been a few weeks now, titled History Kills Big Bucks. And for those who haven't seen or read that article, it's on the Wired to Hunt website. So tell us what that article is about and maybe expand a little more on any tips or tactics that you didn't have time to fit into the article about how you leverage history to target a specific buck or an area itself. Yeah, so I, I've i just come to learn, like, I, I love hunting new areas. Like, hunting new areas is so fun. I love scouting new areas. But when it comes down to it, if you're targeting a specific buck or you're trying to be successful year in, year out, there's a lot to be learned from hunting the same area year after year and learning it and being able to adapt to it. And I, I always kind of look at going into an area as – I don't, I always give an area like a three year strategy. So like I'll go in and the first year is kind of an exploratory year. I might not even hunt it, but I'll, I'll scout it. I'll scout it in the spring. I'll be walking around, checking for signs, setting up trail cameras, doing those types of things. And then trying to hone in a little bit more. Okay. So if I ran, you know, a couple cameras over on this ridge, uh, one on the bottom, the one on this other side here. And okay, this one area on the side hill was really good at this time of year. Um, and there was some nice bucks going through here. You know, maybe I want to, you know, shift some of those other cameras that were less productive, you know, into this area and try to really hone in on, say, a specific deer or, um, or just if you're hunting, you know, bucks in general and, and being able to learn from that, like, okay, this scrape was hot at this time of the year. How am I going to, to focus in on it and taking that information? and continually learning from it and then just adapting to what you're seeing and what you're finding and, and continually move on it. One of the things that I had referenced in, in that article, I believe, was uh, last year uh, I killed my, my nicest archery deer in Pennsylvania to date on the opening day. And that deer wasn't, it was killed on opening day, but at the same time, it was killed it was killed prior to that from the previous year of scouting when I first found this buck and and he was you know he was in this area and specifically in the late season when they had a new logging cut and he's feeding in it he liked this trail and this trail that he liked you know I was going through my camera photos I would log when when he was moving through there what the weather conditions what the wind direction was doing and I noticed he liked a southwest wind where it was quartering to his face when he'd leave this in the morning and head back to his, his bedding area. And so when I went in in the summertime and well, in the springtime, I went in and I ended up finding both of his sheds. I found one in like March and another one in turkey season, about 600 yards apart. And when I was in that, that area, I had set up a camera again in the same spot where I had got in in the late season but i set it up in that summer i I hadn't been back to it until that opening day but i i knew that those foods that food source that that newer clear cut was still going to be prime for them because i've I've learned some of that that browse is good you know in that in the late season as it is in the early season and in this particular area didn't have any acorns 
that year. So I knew the acorns were going to pull them off of that type of that type of food source. So really, the the weather seemed good. The wind direction was the direction he liked to travel on, and I used that information to go in and set up on that deer and, and end up killing him within the first couple hours of the day on opening day. And it was just by taking that knowledge that I had from history and being able to apply it is what led me to having that opportunity. Now, more times than not, it doesn't always work out, you know, the first sit in or whatever it might be, but you, you always learn something to be able to, to keep moving on. Yeah. And I think the overarching lesson or what I'm hearing from you, and this is something I've been trying to stress to people that I communicate with or my friends are hunting. It's like critical thinking. You don't always get it right. Like you said, you don't always have the right answer, but when you take all the information that you have available and, and something that I noted when you were talking about that is you recognize that if there was acorns that could shift the pattern, but because you knew there was no acorns in the area that there's a very good chance he's going to hold the pattern you'd seen him on previously. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and patterning deer in big woods is not, not typical and not, not easy by any means. So I try to, you know, like for me, for some, I feel like for some people it would take like, okay, that deer showing up on camera three days in a row to, to make a move on it. That's just not, not the case in the big woods. Most of the times, like a buck might hit a scrape, but you know, in the end of October once or twice in daylight and over a 10 day span. But, you know, I pay attention to that weather. I pay attention to the, the wind. I pay attention to the dates and, and an upcoming year, um, when similar conditions arise, that's a spot that I want to focus in on. And again, that might not work out, but that's, I, I'm trying to look at, um, those odd, odd multipliers and seeing how, how I can best put those chances in and, and do it. And it, you might need to repeat, um, those, those thought processes in different spots or the same spot multiple times before it works out. But, uh, it's, yeah, like you said, kind of critically thinking about it and, making reasonable assumptions to, to go in yeah i love that phrase i'm gonna steal that odds multiplier that's a good one so i stole that so i <laughs> that, that's not my that's not my phrase it's actually a podcast yes that i had on mark Livesey. he has a, an e-scouting elk uh course that that i'd taken and he uses that term a lot i think it's so awesome and applicable so I use it and I steal it from Mark. So, <laughs> well, if it's already stolen, I won't feel bad about stealing it again. Yeah, it's 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 free speech. You're good. Yeah, but to that point, odds multiplier, like that's how I think about it too. Let's say on any given hunt with no scouting and no preparation, you have like a one percent chance of killing a deer. Well, now you've got some history, some trail camera history on the area. Maybe you've ruled out some areas because, like you said, some years there's an acorn crop, some years there's not. Now you might be up to 5%. And let's say now you've got 10 or 15 or some of these guys got 25, 30 different areas where you're on a buck generally where you know that buck's around, it's a shooter buck. And if you're rotating through these spots where now you've got a 5 or 8 or 10, whatever percent chance it is of killing that deer, but every time you go sit in an area, you've got that chance versus a guy that's got the 1% chance. It's like, to me, that's the difference between the guys that are having occasional or real sporadic success to when you look at guys that are getting it done year after year it's like that's the difference right there they're not doing anything super top secret they're just they're putting in the work grinding 
and accumulating that data and, and making informed decisions with that data. You know, and that's so true. Like we can overcomplicate things a lot. Like <laughs> us as whitetail hunters can overcomplicate things, including myself, and overthink things to death. And a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it comes down to that persistence and just seeing, reading what you're seeing, like looking at what the deer sign and the information that's put in front of you, and you know, logging that, and you, whether in your head or you know, in, in your notes or in, in an app or something and, and then being able to apply that and, and learn from it and just keep, keep doing that. I mean, I, I got into the, the whole ordeal. It's probably, I don't know, three years, four years ago now. I was like, I, I got into my own head because I was hearing so much people talking about bouncing around and, you know, only sitting in the same tree once and doing these things. And, and I started doing that, bounce around all these areas and doing this. And I was like, I was just chasing my own tail. I just wasn't getting anywhere. And I'm like, I need to go back to, and, and that, and I'm, when I say that, I'm not saying that that doesn't work in specific areas or whatever, but I had to go with what I knew and that wasn't working in, in the areas that, that I was hunting and, and in low, lower deer density areas, like you find in, in the big woods, you're not risking spooking deer as much by hunting the same tree over and over again but deer aren't on these patterns of every day they might only come through once every five days so sometimes it takes sitting there over and over again until you have that kind of that encounter that success and and I, I think a lot of that comes down to having confidence in your spots enough to make it right in your own mind that it's okay to sit there for for longer than you you would if you were just kind of blindly guessing yeah and i've noticed that as well because like coming out west you hear living in michigan like oh iowa kansas like all these big deer and maybe you've experienced this as well like i know pa has a really high population of deer not necessarily trophy deer but a lot of deer in general and so does michigan so when i started going to like ohio or kansas the deer densities were way lower and i think you got to take that into account because you know you talk about bouncing around so what i like to do personally and, and this will vary by area but i do bounce around a lot but i bounce around until i find a deer and assuming i don't screw it up the first time or get winded then if i have good access i get back in that area maybe not that exact tree but i'm talking like five ten acre area i want to get back in where that deer was because until you screw it up my opinion is they do stick around that area pretty tight and even if you screw it up once sometimes they still come back there have you experienced anything like that yeah and one thing I, I will say about that so like in pennsylvania it depends on what part of your state you're in so like where i'm at deer densities are low like you're finding like in ohio and some of those other some of those other places so that does vary and mostly like mostly like what i'm referencing to are areas that that you do have this history in that you are confident in some of these spots my strategy is a little bit different when it comes to if I'm traveling out of state and I don't know the area as much or it's a new spot that I'm going into, I'm going to bounce around a little bit until I'm finding deer. Cause you know, if I'm just going to go in and sit in the same tree in an area where I don't know if there's any deer in uh day after day, that's, that's hard and that's not really productive. So I, I agree with like what you're talking about with going in and, and when you find a deer and, and for me, like I don't worry about bumping deer. Um, if I bump a deer, especially when I'm going in, and, and scouting it I, I don't believe that they typically you know leave the country and that's just my opinion 
I don't believe that they take off and completely leave the country. Maybe some do, but I, I believe until you, if you do it a couple times, then they're starting to get educated. But they had a safe area. They got away. They they come back a lot of times. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. They don't leave the country. They might become a little more nocturnal or they might use a different part of the range. But as far as like establishing a, a whole new home range or core area, I think that is real rare, like you said, unless there's repeated pressure, or, you know, really bad encounters for them. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, or maybe like that. Maybe if you um, you catch him sleeping and you walk up about ten yards and he jumps about five feet in the air because he's so afraid. Maybe that might be a different story. But <laughs> right, right. Well, aside from history, which uh, that's certainly a key component in your tactics toolbox. What other tactics have helped you tip the scales in your favor when hunting these mountain bucks? And one thing that we've kind of touched on briefly, and I'd be more interested to hear some details is how you're using your trail cameras and, and how valuable or you know not valuable do you think that is as a tool for mountain bucks specifically? Oh, I think trail cameras are huge. I think trail cameras are uh, can be a big benefit in confirming that if you're hunting a specific deer that he's in the area or even just learning an area, I think trail cameras can be really big. And for me, uh, when I'm into a new spot, I run cameras a little bit differently where I try to cover different, if it's an area that has a lot of terrain, I'm trying to cover different levels of terrain. I might have one on a community scrape and a creek bottom. I might have one a third of the way up the, the a point or a ridge on a, a scrape that I find. And then I might be up a little bit higher on a bench system and where I find, you know, another, normally you'll hear me say scrapes a lot because I put cameras on scrapes 90% of the time. And then, then I'll have one on the top, you know, maybe where it funnels movement down. And I'll use that to learn. And, my, but I don't use cameras usually to the point of real time data or like, uh, acting on data I find right then and there. I, I, I mostly use it for learning in the future or for the next season. Um, so that's why I do that. And then I'll learn, as I kind of mentioned earlier, a little bit with, um, you know, if one area is better, I see deer on a certain, um, terrain level moving or a buck's going there. I'm like, okay, maybe he's, you know, betting out on this point at this, at this elevation level. And, and I need to focus more on that and maybe run a camera on a different side of this point on the same elevation level, you know, the next year and kind of using that as a, the tool. There's, there's factors that come into play with that as far as you, you need to pay attention to or ask questions like, why was he traveling there? Is it because there was only acorn crop on this part of the hill. Was it because there's cover out there that they can, you know, bet in or he's traveling through cover? You know, what, what ask those questions and, and learn from it in areas that don't have as much terrain. That's just big timber type places. I'm looking, I usually am setting them up on a bunch of different edges on the edges of clear cuts or hemlock and conifer trees and swampy bottoms or whatever it might be. I try to split them up on that first year and then hone in onto a smaller spot in year two and three in those places where I might have, you know, where cameras are spread out that first year, that next year I might have three or four cameras or even more in a very small area. Some of them being within eyesight of each other um, and, and honing in around say a, a logging cut that I think the buck could be bedding in or uh, around um, 
uh, in, in Oak Ridge at, that has some acorns that are dropping or whatever that might be, uh, then I get a little bit more surgical with it and, and I'm throwing more cameras at a specific specific location. But the cameras are, are uh, definitely a big part of my strategy. And the only time that like I'm really, not the only time, but most of the time when I'm, ch- I'm checking them on a more regular basis and using that information is during the rut because I'm, I'm moving around a little bit and I'm going to I'll check them on my way in or in PA with not having Sundays to hunt or I'm scouting on Sundays, I'll check them. And I'm more so looking at where the does are hanging out at for that specific occasion. And less so that if I would have a buck cruising through there, um, yeah, and more so for that real-time data is trying to find uh, where the does are at that point. So I want to touch on a couple of things you said there. And the first one is you talked about maybe getting surgical, placing multiple cameras, possibly even within eyesight or on clear cuts and stuff. So I'd like to know, and I'm sure this is a it depends uh, answer, right? There's a lot of those in deer hunting, but how do you balance pressure with your intel gathering, right? Like how do you know where the line is where you're not in that area so often you're, you're spooking those deer out of there with or, or how often are you checking your cameras? I'm sure that depends too, but maybe talk about those items a little bit. So, I mean, I'm really not checking cameras very often unless it's, unless it's during the rut where I don't feel like you're really spooking things as much or have the, or where it's lower risk. But most of the time I don't really have uh like 10 day or 14 day thing. Usually it's, I'd say it's probably more so like 21 days. Um, that I'd go in and check some of these cameras, which usually doesn't help for the intel because it's old at that point. But it's more so kind of confirming what's what's in the area. But so I, I'm I'm more of the on, on the standpoint of leaving cameras out, and it might look like if you see if you you know Jeremy was following me on like Instagram, like I'm always checking cameras. That's because they're in different areas, and I'm kind of just rotating um, and checking those. I mean, I have. I have a, a one area that cameras out that I put out last April that I haven't been back to yet. Right. <laughs> so the, it, it it all depends. I hate giving that answer, but it, it definitely does depend. I don't like to put when I'm starting to get surgical with it and I'm closing in on like a bedroom or something. I'm not trying to check those cameras very often. Um, I will though, like if it's a, a rainy day or something and I feel like I can get away with it a little bit more. Then I there's a, there's a chance that I'll I'll go and try to catch check those cameras and and try to confirm that the bucks you know using that area and then I'm not completely out of the game but a lot of times just the the sign will tell you that too. And then you talked about placing a lot of your cameras over scrapes. Now, are you doing anything to like keep these cameras out of eyesight? Are you elevating them, camouflaging them, doing any like scent prevention stuff? Uh, a lot of, sometimes I would, I'll put them up in the air, but I've actually gotten away from that a little bit more. I did that more for the human pressure standpoint, but I feel like you miss a lot when you're angled down at them. But if I'm in a, if I'm in a high hunter type area where there's a lot of pressure, I'll usually put them up in a tree high or I'll like bury them into a stump. I might not even run a strap around to set the camera inside a stump, um, so that it kind of camouflages a little bit more for the people. Now I do, I have noticed that some deer just don't love cameras and they will get spooked by them, but that's not normally my initial thought unless it's like, you know, right in their face. If, if I'm running a camera perpendicular to a trail 
then I'll, I can, I'll run it at any level. It's not really in their face. If I have a camera that's like facing the trail and they're running parallel to it and the trail is like coming towards the camera, at that point is when I'm more so going to put it up in a tree and angle it down um, than I would if it was on the side of it. So that's kind of how I look at it in that different scenario. And, and then, yeah, kind of use it that way. Now that's a great tip there. Like the, you know, perpendicular versus the, head-on trail because that makes a lot of sense to me yeah and the other thing you asked about scent scent control with it um typically i'm wearing just like my regular gloves when i'm touching the camera but i don't really pay attention i don't spray them down or anything afterwards uh, i mean like when i'm making the the scrapes or i'm freshening up the scrapes i'm just using my leather boot to do so uh i don't i don't get too worked up on the scent part of it yeah, not a lot of scent control going on on this podcast. I've I've shot some of my biggest deer after days without a shower. So, I mean, I I do think <laughs> I do think there's merit to it, but I think if you're smart about it and play in the wind, but I have noticed on cameras specifically like I don't run a lot of cameras anymore out west. I ran a lot more in Michigan, but I would try to keep them in like relatively low scent areas like I'm not going to leave them in my garage where there's gas or a bunch of foreign odors. And I would put them in my backpack and wear some sort of gloves and, and, you know, the gloves that are relatively clean, I think just keeping the oils from your hands off it does help. And that stuff fades away over time. But if you're putting them out and I mean, so many people talk about, oh, I don't get target buck pictures for three, four five days, seven days. And I think that's just like the oils from your hands kind of diminishing off the camera. Yeah, no, that's definitely, that's definitely possible. And and there's, I, and I, I don't want to say scent control is not important. I'm sure it does help, but it's just not something that I've uh, paid a lot of whole, a lot of attention to. I, I used to do it where I'd get, like get changed outside the truck and do all that, and, and to me, it just became a point where it was like I didn't, uh, I didn't see the benefit for the amount of work I have to put cold clothes on and everything to to be able to do that that every day. So I, I just. The, with spraying down and do and I do spray down when I leave the truck, but it's more of a kind of mental thing that I think it's really adding benefit to it. And I just, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I just don't know if some of those scent control measures are doing enough that it makes uh, enough of a distance, uh, yeah, difference for it because the the deer are going to be able to to really get your scent no matter what. It, it's almost impossible to get to zero but i i get the whole if we go back to what we talked about earlier i'm contradicting myself when i'm talking about you know perfection and good so <laughs> no I, i'm <laughs> same way at one point i did scent lock and i wore the sprays and washed my clothes and scent free and i i think one of the things that's changed for me though too especially out west and even for whitetails i hunt off the ground a lot more and like semi-mobile even during the hunt like where i'm doing almost still hunting so i'm really cognizant of the wind and you know almost always working either in a crosswind or into the wind so it's i don't know it's just less of a factor for me and out here i I do so much hiking i'm a bigger guy so i just sweat constantly it's like there's no way the scent control is is working for me personally (laughs) yeah i get you there yeah and uh back on the trail cameras i had one more question so i've seen you have done a lot of collaborations with exodus and those guys are, are really taking off and they could put out a lot of great content too i watch them pretty regular 
Have you picked up any tips or tricks from those guys to help you use your trail cameras more effectively? And if so, what are they? Uh, one of the things that is uh, just running cameras on video mode, mostly because I felt like the cameras that I've used didn't take very good quality video, and it was just kind of difficult to transfer them over your computer. But I love those Exodus cameras where they uh, the video is clear, and you learn a lot from video. As far as travel, you get understanding of the buck's posture and their kind of emotions that they have, whether they're hitting a scrape or just the way they're moving and walking. And that, you know, there was a, there was a buck that that another hunter ended up killing this past year. It was a, a buck that I was hunting, and I learned from the video trail cameras that he must have injured his leg, you know, years ago, and he just walked with a limp. And you could kind of see that in his track. And I wouldn't have known that without seeing that on video. So that was something that I learned from from those guys, and and it's been been a helpful helpful tactic. How long do you typically set your videos to? Are you doing like 10, 30, 60 seconds? I'm doing uh, usually 15, okay. 15 to 20. And that also depends on the angle that I have it at as far as uh, with the perpendicular or with parallel to the trail. Those types of things kind of matter as far as how I'll, I'll run that. Okay. And, well, let's shift gears Again here, so that's trail cameras and a lot of great tips there. Some things that I hadn't thought about, so appreciate you sharing those with me and and going to definitely take away one or two things from that discussion. But postseason scouting, so that's just around the corner. Or maybe it's already started for you. Maybe it never stops, but what are you looking for specifically, let's say February through the end of April or whenever you get green up in your area? Are you looking at the macro picture? Are you trying to dial in on details like exact beds? Staying locations, maybe some combination of those. So what are you looking for personally this time frame of year? If it's a new area, I'm looking at it more of the big picture and trying to get ideas of where I'm going to go or where I need to focus on, or where I need to try to run cameras. But if it's an area that I've been in before, I'm, I'm getting super uh, focused on the details and picking trees and 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 there's there'll be there'll be a lot of times when I'll scout an area where I carry my climbing sticks and my saddle with me so I can climb in trees and see how it works out and and understand that. So I'm I focus a lot. I mean, postseason scouting, spring scouting is the time when I spend the most time in the woods. Every time I go in and do scouting, I log it. I have a Garmin watch. I just like I turn on the tracking feature and. And I'll just keep running that and, and to log my miles throughout the, the year. And usually every spring I do somewhere, usually over 200 miles on my boots. I put a lot of time in, in that time frame. And I feel like that that is, is really helpful for me lining up in the fall. There's caveats I will say with that is in areas like we talked about, food sources shifting. So you might find sign in one area where the following year, that those food sources aren't there, which the sign might not be there. But if you're in an area where it's mostly browse and you don't even have any oak trees or anything or any mass crops like that, a lot of times that sign is relevant year after year after year. Boy, you brought up a lot of great points about how someone can like attack a new piece of area. And I think, again, going back to finding out what works for you, how you're going to deploy those cameras. I did like specifically in the mountain areas how you're talking about running them at different levels like creek level up a bench 
uh, higher up, maybe towards the ridge top. So that's something I wanted to follow up on. Have you noticed any consistency, like in the big woods type areas where you're at, certain features, terrain, vegetation, anything that's consistent where mature bucks kind of gravitate to those areas or that vegetation, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, just thick cover in general usually uh, aligns that, but the, a lot of the problem is with these types of areas is there is a lot of thick cover. So certain areas that have more than others that I would notice is like areas that have uh, multiple ages of clear cuts um, within them or logging cuts. Those type of areas I typically find more mature box i think because they have cover they have food they have all that kind of stuff there it's difficult to hunt those types of places and also different bench systems on the on the side hills like so some more of those faint trails in areas that are on those side hills rather than specifically say on the top where where there might look like there's a lot of sign but those those side hills have been where i've found a lot more of the the mature deer moving in daylight hours. So those are the types of areas that I, that I like to focus on. But the areas that have the the most diversity in vegetation a lot of times are are places that that are gonna be focal points for me. And how I how I shift around those areas depends on the time of year. But uh, an example of a terrain feature that can funnel deer movement and steep country is like where you see a draw or a steep cut that or a yeah, deep cut going up uh, a valley right where that like where it's almost like near like cliff kind of going down in that steep valley where it gets just up to the top of that and it starts to flatten out a little bit there's always a trail that goes around that top that when i say to the top i don't mean the top of the mountain but i mean like the top of where that deep cut runs to and that might be a couple hundred yards below the top of the mountain, but it has an area where it funnels deer movement and trying to find some of those, those natural terrain funnels that are, are not necessarily super easy to be able to identify uh, on the map. But, uh, those types of places are, are killer and, and places that have where terrain and vegetation meet up are my absolute favorite. So, like I like looking at imagery that a lot of imagery that has leap off imagery, and so like for example, one of the biggest things I've been helping out and and working with uh, the guys at Spartan Forge on their their mapping app, and one of the, I said whitetail hunters like having leap off imagery is such a big deal. So when they added that into the app, it's, it's important, and the reason for that is because you can see that different. Uh, those vegetation types, you can see the conifer trees, you can see those hemlock trees, you can see the clear cuts. You might even be able to see mountain laurel, depending on how good the quality of the image is that's running through these spots. You can see the hardwoods, and you can see some of those, those swampy areas, and all that stuff lines up. And it's it's important to to go in and kind of check those areas out. And once I have those places in mind, areas I've seen, you, you know, year after year where uh, those types of areas lend to having mature deer. Then it comes to boots on the ground and kind of really focusing in on, on where the actual, you know, my setup would be. And that varies from place to place, but just getting you in the right spot is, is the first step for me. 
I can definitely relate to the tops of those steep draws. The first good buck that I ever shot was in southeast Ohio, and I think the heads, that's why I call it the top or the head of the draw, especially if it's steep and the steeper and nastier the draw, if like you want down trees in it and the nastier it is, the better. But around the tops of those, yeah, you, I mean, you could have a two, 300-yard wide hillside, you know, on both sides of that, and then that deer's got to come up from lower or, you know, if he's 50 yards below it, he's not going to cross through that draw. He's going to come up and circle right around the head of that draw. And if those are, especially, I think, if those are below the top because they don't seem to want to expose themselves as much on the tops of a ridge, those are killer places. That deer that I shot the, the first morning I found that spot, I sat up right over top of it, which in, in hindsight was a mistake. And I had a deer come in like on top of me. There's a, there a saddle there too. It was like a really killer spot because it was a, a saddle going over the hill. And then on one side of the saddle, there was that steep draw. So it was like funneling deer through the saddle and funneling deer on the side hill. And the deer came through the saddle and I just, it was my first time on that property and it ended up busting me. So the next day I sat off that where like the deer that'd be funneled through would come down the trail farther and end up killing the deer first thing the, the next morning so those spots are great and then in iowa this year i did a ton of boots on the ground scouting over uh, a weekend where i walked i don't know 25 miles in a couple days and Iowa's got a lot of like really steep ditches like cut bank ditches and there was real heavy deer trail like cruising sign of you know wherever you could get through that ditch without going down a six, eight, 10 foot bank. So great tip there. And then one of the other things that you mentioned that I think is killer too, is where you got terrain and vegetation converging, like where you've got a saddle next to a clear cut and a mature timber, right? That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Anytime you can get multiple terrain features, it's almost like one plus one equals three, where you got the terrain and the vegetation working for you. Those spots can be real killer. Those are those odds multipliers again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that odds multiplier. And I was going to ask you, but you answered my own question there. Where do you get your leaf off imagery? So I don't have Spartan Forge yet. I've learned a little bit about it. Talk to me about their imagery and, and leaf off, I know, is a huge thing for all the reasons you talked about. So do you know where they're sourcing that from? And how's your experience been with Spartan Forge using the app overall? Um, it's been good. So they source it from uh, multiple uh, different places. And one of the ones that I've been testing that hasn't been out to everybody else yet, but is uh, through Bing. So it, I don't know if you remember, like, actually years ago, some of the Bing maps that they had were really good for uh, being able to see imagery and leap off imagery. And they just bought some of the, the mapping from them, sourcing it from them. And I, I don't remember some of the other specific places they they got it from, but some of the imagery is so clear that when you zoom in on it, you can literally see the trees and the branches that are coming off of the trees, which is is pretty cool to be able to. I was talking to uh, Garrett Prawl, that's DIY Sportsman uh, YouTube channel there, and uh, he he's been helping with developing that. And he was showing us like you could literally see the tree that he killed a buck out of and the limbs and where he set up in the saddle and everything. And it was, it was pretty cool. So that's, that's been really uh, important for me is being able to see that and find mapping. I mean, up until that point, I'd always used Google earth and going back on the historical imagery until I could find some, some time that 
that didn't have leaves on it, which a lot of time when you're doing that, you're getting photos that are from seven, eight years old and you might not be able to see any cuts uh, or anything else that's in there. So th- some of the, the mapping that they've been able to get is impressive. And they're, they're going to be adding a feature where if you actually want to, Jeremy, like if you were to have an area and there wasn't, say, leaf off imagery available in it, where you could purchase specific maps or things for that area for you, be like an extra fee to be able to do it if they didn't have it available there. And then you could add it right into your app. Oh, that'd be cool. Like a la carte imagery for your profile or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That'd be a neat feature for sure. And I know, like you said, that is super important for, for guys that are e-scouting. So that'd definitely be valuable. All right. Well, I think we, we covered that topic pretty in depth, which I appreciate again, a lot of great tips and, and I had high expectations, Bo, and you're delivering. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. I'm glad I'm not disappointed. <laughs> so, but one of the things that we have in common is that we both run a podcast and I'd like to know what have been some of your biggest takeaways or aha moments from hosting the East meets West podcast. Um, I would say that just looking at the trends of the really successful hunters that I get to talk to and, and seeing where, what those trends are. And like one of the things that I've learned from talking to hundreds of people now is that just it's super simple it's a tactic that anybody can apply but it's just persistent and not giving up and you know whether it's on the backcountry hunts or it's whitetail hunting not giving up until that you know last bell rings so to speak you know and and a lot of these guys are getting it done on the last couple days of the hunt or the last few hours of a hunt but it's because they stick with it and they don't just you know, do it for three or four days on, you know, a five-day trip and be like, well, I gave it my shot, you know, it sucked, the weather wasn't right, this didn't happen. That persistence is something that that I've noticed. Another moment or, or thought, I guess, that I had is everyone's got their own attention to detail, but the successful people have attention to detail and things. And whether it's the way they pack their gear, whether it's the way they enter into their tree, whether it's what... Whatever it is, they have these little quirks to them or these little details that they live by. And I found that to be something I see in common. The persistence thing, for sure. Like, attitude is so important. I've been on quite a few out-of-state hunts now with a bunch of different people, and it's interesting to see, like, how they respond to adversity because especially the first year, you talked about having, like, a three-year plan, and I can relate to that 100%. I always call the first year tuition, right? I'm like donating my money to learn about this area. And yeah, whether that's in time or trail cameras or gas or whatever, like if I get something the first year, great. But I always call that like the tuition year. And then the sophomore year, it's like you kind of start to figure things out. And then by year three, you're, you're turning into a, a veteran. But especially in a new area, like a first time on an out-of-state hunt, like things very rarely go your way. Sometimes they do, but very rarely. And it's like, how are you going to, keep your morale up and respond to adversity and and keep a positive attitude. Because if you don't have a positive attitude, like you're getting out of your stand early, or maybe you're not as focused as you could be. And a lot of times that's the difference between, you know, it's a, it's a thin margin between, I don't want to say failure, but not harvesting an animal and harvesting an animal. It's a pretty small line sometimes. And, and attitude, I think a lot of times is the difference maker. I would agree. That's, that's, that's so big attitude and confidence. Like these people that are, that are getting it done 
you know, year after year. They always have a good attitude or if, you know, things aren't going the way, like you said, they're able to adapt and, and deal with that adversity, adversity and, and just figure it out. And I think that's, um, that's, that's really, really important. And that's one reason that I don't hunt with a lot of people. Like I, if I find people that I work well with, then I stick with them because I, I've hunted with people that don't have great attitudes or, or when it gets going, gets tough, you know, they're just, well, you know, they blame it on this or that. And, and that makes it tough and brings you down too. So I, I think that's a, that's a good thing to add. Yeah, for sure. Well, last deer tactics related question here. And I've been asking this one a lot lately. I like to get the distilled experience of everyone I have on and, and a few sound bites here. So give me your top three things that you have learned that have had the biggest impact on your success, uh, i.e., you know, what's the most bang for your buck, the lessons that you've learned? Huh, that's, that's tough, but I'd say one of them would be having confidence in a spot and giving the spot its due diligence. And I talked about that a little bit earlier, but w- when it comes to deer hunting, being able to understand that sign or having history with that area and having that confidence and sitting there, even if you're not seeing a deer two days in a row, um, that to be able to do that. So like for me is being able to have confidence in a spot and give it its due diligence and sit there for the time period that, that seems reasonable, um, for that has been something I feel like that has led to, to success, uh, for me there. Another thing is, just being able to ask the question why that's not a specific tactic, but that's more of, uh, when you're reading sign or you see a deer bedded and you bump them, why was he better there? What was he doing? Some of those, sometimes you can't get those exact line answers, but if you ask that question more, you get more down to the, the, the root cause of, of why they might've been there and you can learn from that. So I think, asking yourself why when you're looking at at sign and or, or seeing a deer or whatever it might be is is a super helpful tactic and i think the the third thing is, is and this has been something that we we've kind of talked about a bunch i think people will understand that it's it's important to me is is not spreading yourself too thin and focusing on in area or a few areas, I believe in having backup plans for everything, but not, you know, having yourself spread across eight different areas to cover and never really getting a full grasp on it. I'm trying to learn a couple areas very well and learning every square inch of it is, is something I think is extremely important. Can't argue with any of those. And especially the last one, I feel like you almost get in tune with the environment when you spend a lot of time there, whether that's in the spring or the fall. And the more time and the more familiar you get with a certain area, it's like you kind of know when things are happening or get like a sixth sense almost. And it's hard to develop that if you are bouncing around a ton. Yeah, I, I and that's learned from experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Bo, we're, we're running up on, uh, geez, hour and 20 minutes here. want to wrap up with a few final questions. So first of all is, I heard a rumor that you're planning a spring bear hunt in Montana this year. Any truth to that? Yeah, there is truth to that. I don't. I don't think I've I've announced that anywhere except for I, I know where you got that from <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> from from my brother and or and or Tim. 
but uh yeah i'm definitely i'm, I'm gonna go to montana this year in may and do spring bear hunt something i've always wanted to do and and i love i like turkey hunting but I I don't love it enough to to want to hunt it the whole month. I want to do some a little bit of western hunting mixed into it. So that's that's my plan. I'm gonna I'm gonna come out for seven ten days or something and and hunt the spring. That's awesome. So have you hunted in Montana before, or this be your first time? No, but I I plan on if the draws go my way, spending a lot of time in Montana this year. I've been putting in for a special elk tag that uh, that. I think me and two of my buddies should draw this year, um, and then hopefully get the combo tag as well to hunt mule deer. So, like, I'm I'm trying to go all in on Montana while first living out there. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's awesome. So, what? Uh, and we don't have to get too far into the weeds here, but you've talked about coming out in May. You got a plan of attack or any like general part of the state? You know, c- central or western, obviously, is where most of the bears are at. And do you know that there is indeed a grizzly bear behind every tree in Montana. Well, yeah. So actually, I, d- I don't have a good plan of attack right now for that. I haven't looked into it a whole lot yet other than I know I, I also have an added benefit of, of my brother living there, and he had some spots that we were talking about checking out. It's going to be a little bit more laid back than I typically would do a hunt. We're planning on setting up uh, like a truck camp type deal and hiking back to that every day and going in. But um, we mostly focused on the western part of the state for that type of hunt. But uh, yeah, there's there is grizzly bears behind every tree. When I was down there, I mean, I was constantly having to fight them off. So uh, I'll be I'll be prepared with that. I'm gonna have bear spray hanging from my necklace, from my bino harness. I'm gonna have it on my <laughs> hip belt. I'm gonna have a 45 slung across. Like I'm gonna have it all. So yeah. don't, don't worry, Jeremy. I'll be protected. You can never be too safe. <laughs> no, and uh, yeah, in all, in all seriousness, I think. And my understanding was before I moved to Montana was obviously I knew there was grizzlies here, but we've spent a lot of time out hunting, not always in grizzly country. And and actually I don't hunt in grizzly country a ton, but I've hiked there a lot. My girlfriend has a death wish for me. I think she's trying to get my life insurance money or something. So she's always making (laughs) me hike in grizzly country. And uh, we've only seen one while out hiking. And and actually it was kind of scary because it was a juvenile bear. And the first thing I thought was, oh, oh no, where's mom at? But it was just a, must have been just, you know, a freshly off the mom cub, whatever age that is, two or three years old. And it ran off. So that was a good grizzly experience there. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that many, but I've seen quite a few black bears. And, you know, obviously black bears, different animal and not nearly as scary as a grizzly. So that's been good. Every black bear I've seen uh, to date has run away very quickly. So that's good. Unless you're trying to hunt them, then then running away is not so good. Yeah, I've I've never seen a grizzly in the lower forty-eight. I've seen them when I hunted in Alaska, but never, never in the lower forty-eight. So we'll see. I heard they're a little more aggressive. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you talked about your brother who lives in Montana. That's actually how we met in person the first time. Any chance that you uh, move out here yourself, or any Western plans? Are you firmly rooted in PA? I wouldn't say I'm firmly rooted in PA, but I don't see I don't see myself anytime soon moving out west. Uh, to be honest, the cost of living is pretty crazy um, in a lot of the those western states now. It's become popular, and and for me, I just my goal is to create more time to get to explore those places and see them, but not uh, I, I don't have any 
any media plans to uh, try to move there. I, I, I'll be honest, I like Pennsylvania. I, I don't mind it. I like the hunting. I like the areas. I like the seasons. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty good for me. But I, I need a. I need a good dose of being out west every year, and that, as up to this point, has been giving me a pretty good tick. Yeah, that's awesome, and it's uh, fortunate for you now. You have kind of a built-in base camp if you want to come hunt in Montana specifically. Yep, that's that's the plan. I you know Kurt's going to get a little annoyed from me showing up often, but that is what it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> last thing, Bo, I wanted to say that I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed this conversation. And if people want to learn more about you or your podcast, give a shout out to your social media. Where can people find you at? First of all, thank you for having me on. I'm pumped uh, to get to talk to you on you. Like I said, getting to meet you in person was cool and, and spending some time with you there, but getting to, to talk some more detail hunting is always a, always a good time. So thank you. But where people can find my stuff at my podcast is East meets West hunt. You can find that on any of the podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google, all those different places, YouTube. Um, have a YouTube channel that's just under my name, Bo Martonic. I created that under a, my own personal Google account a while ago, and I can't figure out how to change the name. East meets West, so it's under my name. <laughs> um, uh, and then also I've got a website, eastmeetswesthunt.com, and then you can find me on social media at East Meets West Hunt or at bo.martonic. Awesome. Well, thanks, Bo. Like I said, I really appreciate the time, and hopefully I'll run into you this May and maybe help you pack a bear out or something. Heck, yeah. I hope to, hope to get to see you out there. I'm sure I'll be running into you in, in some of my uh, trips out there to Montana. All right, Bo. We'll catch you later. Thanks.